Hello and welcome to Beyond the Page, a Life is Story podcast. I'm Josh Olds, and today I'm talking with Brian Zond about his new book, When Everything's on Fire, Faith Forged from the Ashes. Brian, welcome to the program. Thank you, Josh. Thank you for having me. Yeah, now just to begin, uh, can you give me just an overview of the book and how you came to, to write it? Well, I think I'll begin by telling where it was conceived, and I think that'll maybe give something of a hint of what the book is about. Uh, my wife and I, in recent years, have taken to uh, walking pilgrimages. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there has been a resurgence of the medieval practice of pilgrimage, and we walked our first very long one in 2016, the Francis route of the Camino de Santiago that begins in Saint-Jean-Pied-de-Port, France, crosses the Pyrenees, and 500 miles later you arrive in Santiago de Compostela. And we were walking it again, actually for the third time, in 2019. Now, you know, medieval pilgrims would walk these these long paths simply to reach the cathedral where the where the um, relics of the saints could be venerated. I'm not going to comment on that one way or the other. Uh, modern pilgrimage is very different. First of all, if all I want to do is arrive in Santiago and venerate the bones of St. James, allegedly, that are there, I-, I can be there from about anywhere in the world in 24 hours. You know, mm-hmm. So you don't have to walk there. So modern pilgrimage is really, I mean, I know it's a cliche, but it really is about the journey, not the destination. Mm-hmm. And when your life is reduced to the blessed simplicity of simply walking 12 to 15 miles a day, carrying everything that you need on your back, uh, eventually, in, in a week or two, you will arrive at a very different contemplative state. Mm-hmm. And so we were experienced in doing this, but in 2019, we're again walking this very long path. And I was seeing... When, when, when you walk the Camino, um, it's a little bit, it's a little bit like going back in time because you're very aware of an earlier time when it was, for example, uh, 800 years ago, about a half a million people a year were walking that pilgrim route. And so you see the churches that were built up and all of these sorts of things. And I became very aware that there was a time when faith was presumed, where at least some form of belief in God occupied the organizing center of society. And that is now a time that is, if not entirely gone, it is rapidly uh, disappearing. And I would say it probably is gone. And so we've seen the phenomenon, and it's been accelerating of late, of people losing their faith. Sometimes they'll use the term deconstruction, or they'll just say, you know, they just no longer believe. Sometimes prominent people very publicly losing their faith. And I was thinking, well, if I had the opportunity to talk to these people that are in the midst of a struggle, in the midst of a possible deconstruction, what would I say to them? And that's what I was thinking about, and we were 200 miles, two weeks into this Camino, and we arrived at uh, Castro Jariz, a lovely hilltop village there in northern Spain. And I, I, that afternoon, I just sat out outside of our little albergue where we were 
Stain sat there on a terrace, and I, I just wrote these words, what can we do when everything's on fire? Mm-hmm. Eventually it would get shortened to when everything's on fire. Uh, but I thought, okay, if I could walk with people for a day or two who feel like their faith is hanging by a tenuous thread, what might I say? And I outlined the 11 chapters that became this book. So I don't know, that's a kind of a rambling response to your first question there, Josh, but it was conceived on the Camino de Santiago in the fall of 2019. I didn't actually start writing it until uh, January of 2020, and shortly thereafter, uh, the book that I had entitled When Everything is on Fire in the fall of 2019 took on a new meaning because suddenly it seemed like everything was on fire. Right, yeah. So I think the, in- the intent of the book is for, it's my attempt, to help people hold on to faith when it's under siege or it's when it's threatened or when it feels like it could be uh, consumed in the flames of a secular inferno. That's what I'm up to in the book. Mm-hmm. I, I do find it very interesting because when when I when I first learned of the book, you, my assumption was more that it was written as a reflection on on 2020, on the beginning of 2021. Right. Um, but really, what we're seeing is is everything that's come out politically, religiously um, over the past 18 months, two years is really just the spillover of something that has been going on for years and years and years beforehand. Well, and this is largely how I open the book. Mm -hmm. I talk about how the time we are living in with the loss of faith being precipitous in Western society is something that was clearly foreseen by Friedrich Nietzsche, the great German Mm -hmm. philosopher and very caustic vehement critic of Christianity, who I need to say, because I, I don't want listeners to be confused, I actually like Nietzsche. Mm-hmm. Now, I, of course, have profound points of disagreement with him, but personally, I like him, and I've read quite widely and deeply in Nietzsche. I think part of why I like him is he's just such a good writer. <laughs> I mean, whatever else he was, he was a fantastic writer, and I'm a little bit sympathetic in that he was a PK, he was a preacher's kid. His father was a Lutheran pastor. But anyway, um, in the 1880s, maybe 1882, I can't remember the exact date at the, off the top of my head at this moment, uh, he wrote the parable of the madman. Mm-hmm. He says that on a bright sunny morning, a, a madman comes into the village holding aloft a lantern on this bright sunny morning, crying out, Whither is God? I seek God. I can't find God. Where is God? And the villagers gather around the absurdity of a man holding a lantern on a bright sunny morning saying, I can't find God. And they're laughing. And suddenly the madman jumps into the midst and screams, where is God? I will tell you, God is dead. And we have killed him. And they begin to laugh even more, uh, to which the madman says, oh, I see. I've come too early. My time is not yet. And then he smashes the lantern and goes into the churches and sings a requiem for God. This is Nietzsche's very creative way of setting forth what he was observing. Uh, say what you will about PKs. You know, I've raised three of them, but they can be acutely sensitive to hypocrisy. That is, mm-hmm. to to uh, parishioners who do not actually live according to their profession. And Nietzsche, with with the 
prescience of a kind of a mad prophet foresaw very clearly that Western society had already moved away from God being at the center of society. They just weren't aware of it yet. And Nietzsche was announcing that there would soon come a day when when he says God is dead, he's not simply making an argument for atheism. That's not his point. His point is that suddenly there's going to be an awakening that we live in a society that is thoroughly secular and doesn't actually revolve around the worship of God. And so he foresees that. Now, unlike many of the, uh, well, what is commonly referred to as the new atheists, you know, Hitchens mm-hmm. and, and uh, Dennett and Harris and Dawkins and people like that, Nietzsche was not cavalier about this. He did believe that it was time for humanity to rise up as heroic Greek gods and move on through the will of power into a new age, but he was nervous about it because he knew that if it didn't do that, then his great fear would be that there was no organizing principle left and that nihilism, the yawning abyss of nihilism, would swallow up humanity. That was his great fear. Sometimes people that haven't really read Nietzsche will accuse him of being a nihilist. He wasn't. Uh, in fact, that was his great fear. His hope was for, famously, the, the Superman, the Ubermensch, the Overman. And basically, this was humanity with a deep commitment to the will to power to shake off what he called the, the shackles of Christian slave morality. He felt that you know loving everyone was an ignoble aspiration for the human species that it was, a, in fact, just a way for the weak to manipulate the strong, and that it kept humanity uh, back from its, its most superb and supreme development. So that was his hope, was the, was the ubermensch. His fear was what he called the last man. And he describes the last man as sort of incurious utilitarians who desire nothing more than a bit of prosaic happiness. And he mocks them by saying... Uh, the last men live longest. They're eradicable. They're like an insect. They they uh, say, we have invented happiness, and then blink stupidly. He's really describing sort of, you know, the entertainment-addled mm-hmm. person of the day that can't ever pull their way, their self away from the screen and don't have any more, you know, lofty ambitions than just to sit in front of a television and serve 700 channels. That seems what he's describing. Uh, unfortunately for Nietzsche... Um, well, his Superman turned out to be a Nazi. <laughs> I know not all yeah. not not only these scholars like it when I go down this road, but I, I you're going to have to convince me otherwise that the, the Nazis were those that actually took Nietzsche's works like Twilight of the Idols, Beyond Good and Evil, Genesis of Morals, The Antichrist, others, and made them their canonical text, and they. Uh, you know, did Nietzsche does, was was Nietzsche a genocidal anti-Semite? No, he wasn't. Although his sister may have been, but he wasn't. And uh, but I, if I were if I were because I fantasize in the novel about having lunch with Nietzsche in a cozy cafe in Basel, the first thing I'd have to do is get him caught up on the 20th century because he he went mad in 1890 and then died in 1900. Um, I would have to inform him that you know that in fact his 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 dreamt of Superman turned out to be a monster. And I would I would almost want to chide him a little bit and say, come on, Nietzsche. I mean, 
with this dark fascination with a violent will to power, did you think it was going to end other than in death camps and a continent in ruins? Mm-hmm. And so this is this is what Nietzsche foresaw. Now, there was another one, uh, a rough contemporary of Nietzsche, who uh, they didn't know of each other. Nietzsche may have heard of, I'm speaking of Soren Kierkegaard, the great Danish Christian thinker. Uh, they, they're remarkably similar, although they didn't influence one another. Kierkegaard never heard of Nietzsche. Nietzsche, at best, had only heard of Kierkegaard and had not read him. Uh, but, but Kierkegaard said much the same thing. He brought the same kind of withering criticism against the very sedated state-sponsored Lutherism of Northern Europe that, that Nietzsche leveled. But Kierkegaard believed that at the, at the center of the dry husk of Christendom, there really did lie the true word of God, who is Jesus Christ, and that it was possible in an emerging secular age to return to a genuine, vibrant, faith in Jesus Christ. So in one sense, philosophically, the book is my argument that that Kierkegaard took the better path, and then I begin to I try to help people to who are who are very aware of the failures of the modern Christian experience, uh, that they don't have to abandon it. They mm-hmm. can listen to the criticisms, they can make adjustments, but like Kierkegaard or like Dostoevsky, like others, there is a way to follow Jesus and mm-hmm. and maintain Christian faith even at a time when everything's on fire. Mm-hmm. I think in, in summary, what you're saying is that deconstruction is good and criticism of this just sort of vapid cultural form of, of religion, of Christianity is a good thing. It deserves to be deconstructed. Yeah. The question is, what do you have to reconstruct? What are you left with? Right. You know, I mean, I went through a very uh, critical, important, deep reevaluation of my faith and theology, um, beginning really in 2000, and then maybe it picked up speed in 2004. So that I arrived at, in some ways, not in every way, but in some ways, a very different way of thinking about Christian faith and practicing Christian faith than I had begun with. And I did it very publicly as a pastor of a large church, mm-hmm. which made it interesting, if nothing else. <laughs> so, but at that time, I never, I never used the term deconstruction uh, for a couple of reasons. One, it didn't feel like that. Two. I knew enough of my Jacques Derrida that I knew that the way Derrida uses that phrase, and he's the one that coins it, uh, as the deconstruction of the text, looking for hidden motives, often bids for power within the text, and how the text never arrives at a final meeting. That really wasn't what I was talking about. Uh, but the term has become very much in vogue, and so now I do employ that, and I will talk like that. But... Uh, and, and there's times when it may be appropriate, but deconstruction, and, and especially if you're not really familiar with what Derrida is saying by it, can just sound an awful lot like destruction. Mm-hmm. And it's as if we should approach our Christian faith with sticks of dynamite and a sledgehammer. And I would suggest that that faith in Jesus Christ is far too precious far too sacred to approach with that kind of high-handed recklessness. 
uh, I would say, look, we're dealing with something very precious here. Let's be careful. Uh, deconstruction is certainly not a not an end in itself. It's a method, uh, but it's not a telos. It's not a goal. It's not where we want to end. So I would prefer to talk about like renovation. Mm-hmm. That that we need to maybe renovate our theological house. And in the book, I talk about how your theological house is not uh, a one room bungalow. It's it's a sprawling mansion of many. Rooms, maybe dozens of rooms. And so, in my own experience, there were some theological rooms that needed massive renovation, some that really didn't need much at all, and maybe a few, like my eschatology, maybe the word deconstruction is pretty appropriate there. That would be an example. I had a whole wing of my theological house that was uh, an eschatology that I had inherited. I mean, I come from the Jesus movement, and so, and I, I appreciate appreciate much about the Jesus movement of the 1970s. Uh, I think it was aptly named. It really did have a, have a very uh, pure and, and radical devotion to Jesus, and yet it also, for whatever reason, some of the reasons are complex, also was very devoted to dispensational mm-hmm. uh, eschatology with, you know, late great planet Earth and all of that sort Left of behind. stuff, rapturism. Yeah. Yeah, that, that eventually morphs into, you know, <laughs> the god-awful books of Left Behind. <laughs> and, and and that, you know, I would if we're going to stick with the metaphor of renovating a house, I would say that is where we did use the sledgehammers and mm-hmm. brought it right down to the foundation. But you don't have to do that with everything, and this is one of the problems with uh, certain forms of fundamentalism is it tends to tie everything together so tightly that to rethink or even reject one aspect of Christian theology sometimes imperils the entire faith, as if, you know, if you can disprove one little aspect, the whole thing has to be rejected. And I would I would counsel against that kind of rashness. I think there are ways to uh, maybe even jettison a whole bunch of toxic theology but still hold on to Jesus, and that's really what I'm trying to accomplish in this book. Mm-hmm. Right. I think that's so hard for people because when we do look at the the people who are deconstructing, it's it's from that ex-evangelical group, which is another buzzword. Right. Uh, but people coming from an evangelical or fundamentalist background and what they're deconstructing from is, is not Christianity as a whole, uh, but th- – Specifically, the very specific flavor and branding of Christianity that they have grown up in, and the political beliefs, and the, the sometimes the moral beliefs and the theological beliefs that come from that, and this the the realization that Jesus is outside of those boxes right. is a good a, a good part in beginning that reconstruction process. To understand what things do need to be torn down yeah. and what things do need to be left in place. So if you were speaking to someone who's who's in that spot, and I think that probably describes a, a fair few people who listen to this podcast, um, how do they know what to burn down and what to keep? Well, start with Jesus and try to keep Jesus and then expand from there. But what I've seen sometimes is people... Uh, ostensibly rejecting evangelicalism and walking away from Christianity, but it often looks like what they've done is walk away from Christianity and remain evangelical. (laughs) Hmm. 
mm-hmm. in that in that one of the flaws of evangelicalism and for what it's worth i just want to say this josh it doesn't mean anything but for what it's worth i have never in my life ever self-identified as an evangelical i was you know in the jesus movement we just called ourselves christians or jesus freaks or something like that and then i was maybe i would say i was a charismatic christian that would have been accurate enough but I never called myself evangelical. I think I think it became a much bigger tent because of the culture wars, but right. we'll leave that aside. All right. So one of the flaws of evangelicalism is that it, it regards itself as the only, at least, pure form of the faith. It's rather narrow and arrogant in that regard. Well, then what happens when a Christian reaches a crisis of faith regarding evangelicalism? And they see that it's complicit in power politics and all kinds of things that make it toxic and destructive. They still adhere to the idea, though, that the only possible form of Christianity is is some form of evangelicalism. And so they walk away from the faith entirely instead of saying, wait a minute, this is just one uh, uh, peculiar American expression or, if you will, distortion, at times, of Christian faith. So maybe I should look at other forms in the very wide body of Christ. I think if you're going through deconstruction, become a a little more ecumenical, and say, maybe I'm going to find life in a more liturgical church, or maybe I'm going to find life in an Anabaptist tradition, or maybe I'm going to find life in uh, a mainline progressive expression of Christianity. There are a lot of options out there, rather than just remaining evangelical and saying, I can't be an evangelical, therefore I can't be a Christian. I think that's 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 a fundamentalist mistake. So uh, I would try to hold on to Jesus while you're losing the fundamentalism. <laughs> mm-hmm. Lose your allegiance to evangelicalism, but try to stay focused on Jesus. Maybe for a time, and I've seen people do this to great benefit, that their engagement with any form of Christian scripture or anything is uh, basically reading the Gospels, just reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, let, let Jesus be who Jesus is, and I am willing to bet that Given an honest chance, the beauty of Christ does and will win hearts. Uh, Jesus remains beautiful. And I think most people should, if they operate in good faith, should be able to make a distinction between the beautiful image of Christ and the distorting patina of grime and varnish of you know nationalism and consumerism and politicism and all of that sort of thing you know white racism all of these sorts of things that get applied over the image of Christ i think most people understand you know that can be removed and i can then once again gaze into the beautiful face of christ mm-hmm. so maybe it's like we've discovered an icon in a monastery that's a thousand years old and it had been lost. And it's an icon of Christ. Uh, but we don't want to just throw it away. We want to restore it, but we don't restore it with dynamite or sledgehammers. We restore it with however you restore it, you know, with these solvents and brushes and all of that sort of thing. So, um, and here's the thing to, to, to critique or even attack Christianity is not very hard to do. 
Yes, Nietzsche did it, but to a certain extent, Kierkegaard does it. I mean, he wrote a book entitled Attack Upon Christendom, which is 350 <laughs> blistering pages that, you know, it curled the hair of an evangelical. I mean, it's, he's really throwing down the gauntlet but holding on to Jesus. And so there is a way, and here's the thing, uh, if you, uh, the angry atheists launch their bitter assault upon Christianity, but still they don't attack Jesus. Why? Because you look stupid if you do that. And the few that have tried have abandoned the project, or they just look so absurd that people don't pay attention to them. Nietzsche tried now and then to launch a direct attack upon Jesus and then just decided he couldn't do it. And and and, and then admits, I admire Jesus. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. he, he's ready for the world to move on without Christianity, but he can't but perhaps grudgingly admire Jesus. Yeah. So uh, if, if where what do we hold on to? Where do we start from? What is the foundation? The foundation is what what Christians have always said is the foundation, and that is the revelation of Jesus given to the heart by the Spirit of God, mm-hmm. and that's yeah. worth trying to preserve. Yeah, that's great. I think that that leads right into the the part of the book that was I think I'm, I'm still sort of chewing on it, uh, and that was your your illustration um, about uh, the peach, uh, talking about objective and <laughs> subjective experiences. Uh, right. can, can you share that illustration for the listeners, and then we'll, and then we'll yeah, talk about and it? Yeah, that's, that's me channeling some Kierkegaard there. I mean, the illustration mm-hmm. doesn't come from Kierkegaard, but that's Kierkegaard's thinking at work in me. And I imagine a, uh, a, a, a fictitious person, a scientist, a researcher who has become the world's foremost expert on peaches. He understands their DNA and their genus and their history and everything that can be objectively known about peaches, this guy knows. But in our crazy thought experiment, let's just imagine that for some unexplainable reason, this doctor of peachology... (laughs) has never actually tasted a peach. Now, he can write scholarly and learn papers on it. He can publish on it. He can lecture in academic institutions on peaches, but he's never actually eaten a peach. This does not hinder him in talking about peaches, but it does raise a question. Who really knows the peach? This learned expert who has published papers or, you know, a four-year-old girl who eats a perfect Georgia peach on a summer afternoon? Mm-hmm. So, um, this, that, well, l- l- let me tie it in with what Karl Rahner said in 1971. Karl Rahner, a uh, Catholic German theologian, said that the Christian of the future will be a mystic, that is, one who has experienced something or they'll cease to be anything at all. That's what Karl Rahner says in 1971. He calls that the future. Well, 50 years later, what Carl Rohner called the future, I'm pretty convinced, is actually today. That Christian faith in the present moment from here on for the foreseeable future is going to be sustained not by an argument or not by devotion to a tradition, but by an experience. And that's what we mean by Christian mysticism. It's Some people chafe under that word, maybe your listeners wouldn't, but by by. A mystic within the Christian tradition, we simply mean someone who seeks and at some level attains 
some kind of experience within the mystery of God. And though we cannot at will or on command manufacture such experiences, uh, we can be open to them. And I have found that uh, given half a chance, Jesus is more than willing to make himself known to those that will open, I mean, will actually just open their heart to the possibility that Jesus is who he claims to be. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I mean, Kierkegaard said all truth inheres in subjectivity. And he means the truth that really matters is is the truth that we actually experience, that that since the Enlightenment, we have had a very objective approach to truth, and it, it that's that, that's fine if you're creating the iPhone, but it's not fine if you're trying to understand the meaning of your own life. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I, I talk about the, the O, O. Uh, I said I don't have any interest in a theologian who never utters oh god and oh is the word of subjectivity it's also the word of passing Uh, if all we ever do is have an academic approach to thinking about god um i use another illustration that's that's like the bars on the cage for the lions in the zoo you can go to the zoo you can see the lion you never really experience a lion because you know the bars are there. And so you, you have no idea what it would be like to actually encounter a lion without the bars. Um, as we seek God, not merely in our mind. Look, I've, I've, read, I've read more academic theology than you know, all right? So I'm, I'm perfectly fine with that, and I've benefited from it. But if that is my only experience with God, is object, objective knowledge or academic knowledge... It really is like the bars on the lion cage, and I and I never really encountered the lion, and that can be a way that can be done subconsciously, intentional, mm-hmm. so that we don't encounter Aslan, <laughs> yeah. we don't encounter the living God who might. Uh, such an experience may result in an altered way of living, which is what faith really is. Faith mm-hmm. is not since, since the Enlightenment, we've kind of decided that faith is. Um, a certain way that we think in our head as a as the sole arbiter of truth locked inside our own mind, when really historically, and even in the scriptures, faith is not simply something you assent to as a theological opinion, but it's the trajectory of your life. It's something that says, okay, I, because I believe this way, I live this way. Jesus seems to say that that's the only way that you will ever really know whether what he says is true or not. He says, if anyone's willing to do my will, he'll then know whether the Father sent me or I just made this up. Mm. But Jesus doesn't seem to offer us any way for us to safely just simply know that he's teaching the truth as we kind of you know calmly sit with our legs crossed and read a book. Jesus says, Follow me, and then you'll know. Yeah. But if you don't follow me, you'll never know. Yeah. yeah. I feel like there's uh, – because I, I grew up loving apologetics. Absolutely 
devouring, yeah. you know, least rebel case for Christ, uh, Norman Geisler, Frank Turek, which, which I kind of poked everything. Fun you did, you did, and and even though, you know, I still I still respect those individuals and I appreciate right. what they're doing, and I I do believe it has its space and that it's helpful. Um, but when you downplay the experiential aspect of it. Uh, you're really you're really just going to like the the verse in, in James um, where he says uh, I think it's I think it's uh, two nineteen where he says you believe there's one God good well even the demons believe <laughs> and, you know so this this objective belief you know the demons have better theology than any of us um, and honestly it's all, it's a theology based on their own experience uh, it's a choosing it's what you do with your with your choice but having you know, having grown up in that, um, you know, with that with that upbringing of apologetics and um, you know the historical, archaeological, trying to prove the Bible, I feel like I feel like we did that as a Christian culture um, because as as science really began to take off with, you know, in the 1800s, right. 1900s, Industrial Revolution, uh, we start to see Christianity be attacked on intellectual grounds. And so Christianity fights back and says, well, we have to be intellectual too. We need to, uh, we need to basically go to that playing field and begin to develop this apologetic. Yeah, it's apologetic. to harness empiricism to, mm -hmm. quote, prove Christianity. This is really at the heart of most modern Christian apologetics, which, by the way, I, I noticed that, and I don't mind this, but I've noticed that when everything's on fire, it's primarily categorized uh, as Christian <laughs> apologetics. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, that's 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 where you know you know you know it ranks such and such in Christian apologetics, right? Um, and it is that, but it's not a modern. Yeah, it's a different time. Rooted in a more ancient, a, a pre-modern approach to defending the claims of Christian faith. The problem with empiricism, and you have to understand, when I'm critiquing empiricism, I'm not I'm not critiquing the scientific method. I I don't know of any major scientific theory that is any threat to my faith. I'm not I'm not going to argue against any of it. I'm just saying that when when the empirical method says that we have now said everything we can say about the phenomenon of being, there's still more to be said. Because the one fault of empiricism is that everything that can be known in the phenomenon of being is going to be ascertained through the five physical senses. This is the, this is the path that, that uh, Lene Descartes puts us on with his publication of Discourse of Method in 1638. He says, I'm going to doubt everything I can doubt, and I'm going to find epistemological bedrock mm -hmm. that way, and he realizes, okay, you can doubt everything. What can't be doubted? You can doubt everything, but then he says, aha, in the process of doubting, I am thinking, cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am, and he believes, I think falsely, that he has found epistemological bedrock, and he starts from there. Well, that's fine if your goal is to merely engage in scientific inquiry of the material world. And I, and I think that's a worthy pursuit. I have nothing against that. In fact, I'm all for it. I celebrate it. 
but I don't think it's the entire answer to the phenomenon phenomenon of being. And that's why, if we're going to listen to Descartes, who, by the way, was a believing Catholic, he wasn't trying to disprove God, but he puts us on a trajectory that is very difficult to hold on to Christian faith if, if you only want to prove it by empirical methods. That's why we need to listen to his contemporary and intellectual equal, Blaise Pascal, who's one of the greatest mathematical minds in history. You can't say he was opposed to reason. I mean, that would be absurd. But in his pensée, because of his own uh, religious experience, and I stress experience, not tradition, but experience, he gives us the famous axiom, the heart has its reasons, of which reason knows nothing. Mm-hmm. And I think most people actually know that's true, because the heart is where we experience such things as love. Now, a, a logical positivist will want to make the argument that love is not... It doesn't have ontological being at all, that it is simply maybe a chemical response or it's advantageous to the evolution of the species. All of these things, in fact, may be true insofar as they go, but I don't think many people, hardly any, believe that love is nothing more than an evolutionary adaptation or a chemical response. And so, and by the way, this is what, this is what, uh, Marx, Freud and Nietzsche as the masters of suspicion. That's the phrase. That's the term that was given to them by. Uh, oh, it just slipped my mind now. Which which philosopher? Which French philosopher? Um, Paul Ricoeur. It came back to me. Paul Ricoeur called them the uh, masters of suspicion, and what they were mostly suspicious of was the claim of the reality of altruistic love, especially in the Christian form, what Christians would maybe know to call agape. Mm-hmm. And Marx is going to say, no, nah, it's really all about money. Freud's going to say, no, nah, it's really all about, all about sex. And Nietzsche especially is going to say, no, it's really just a bid for power. It's a way for the weak to man- manipulate the strong. Now, the good news is I think most people are not persuaded by that. Most people say, yeah good try, but no, I think I, I know the love that I have for my wife or the love that I have for my children or the love that I experienced from my parents or wherever they found love. And they say it's more than all of that. I think altruistic love is real, and it's not accountable to the empirical method, not in, not in its entirety, but it can be experienced in the heart. And the heart, and, and that may be a, a metaphorical term, but I think people know what we mean by that. The heart is where we also experience God. And so part of the invitation of the book is for people to come down out of, come down from up inside their head, up in the attic with all those dusty National Geographic move magazines, come down out of the head, and the head has its place, okay? But come down out of the head into the heart, into the heart room, and, and sit with Jesus and invite Jesus to make himself known and our faith, our Christian faith, is founded there, not in some foundationalism that we all can agree upon to the empirical method, and then we have to write evidence in a man's a verdict, whose argument essentially is, well, if you guys were just not so daft, you would just everybody figure out that the tomb was empty because Jesus was raised from the dead. No, it can't be proven that way. Um, the foundation for Christian faith is our own experience with the living God, not with some 
the same way that you can prove the existence of the planet Neptune or something like that. Yeah, it's Paul on the Damascus Road and his experience with yes, Jesus. Yes. The question that I have, and, and I find myself agreeing with what you're saying, um, the, the, the pushback that I have, and because this is what's been lodged into my head from my evangelical upbringing, is that if it's about subjective experience, then number one, can I trust it? And number mm-hmm. two, can I then objectively critique anyone else's beliefs? Uh, if someone else says, well, I believe uh, you know hinduism i believe islam um if in lieu of of saying that the subjective experience with the living christ trumps right or is greater than um the evidence of objective reality and empiricism then how do we how how do we know uh, that the experience that we're having is something that is valid couple of things. One, uh, another problem of that we've inherited from Descartes is that we are radically dualistic and we're radically individualized mm-hmm. so that I have to become the sole arbiter of truth or somehow it's inauthentic. Christian faith is not a solo project. The Desert Fathers had a saying, one Christian is no Christian. And we are invited to participate in a tradition. Now, modernity has been death on tradition. Modernity arises as this strident, virulent critique of traditions. And part of its agenda is to undermine any and all other previous traditions as a source of wisdom or even knowledge. this is where postmodernity has done us a favor. I don't agree with everything about postmodernity, especially when it takes the turn toward nihilism. But one of the things that postmodernity has done well is punctured the pride of modernity. And it, it comes along and says, hey, modernity, you know what you are? You're just a tradition of critiquing all other traditions. That's all you are. And then I would as, add it as such, it is a rather impoverished tradition. So... The first thing is we have to understand that Christian faith is something that we collectively experience. And you're going to, and I don't, I, our listeners may not like what I'm going to say next, but I don't, I can't avoid it. You're going to have to trust some tradition. And if you say, well, I, I, I'm not, I'm unwilling to do that, then I say, well, then, then you're on your own. Then you're all alone upside in your, upside in your head. The fact is, uh, people choose, as people actually live their life, they end up trusting some tradition. They just might trust ones that are not, that are rather new, rather flimsy, rather shoddy. And so I would rather uh, evaluate my own experience of the living God in the uh, context of a historic Christian tradition, and then allow that to inform how I might evaluate. So I, I wouldn't want to endorse my experience that was well outside the bounds of Christian received faith. The other thing, as far as you know, critiquing other religious traditions, um, I think I'm, I might be in the minority on this, but um, I think I think that actually compared comparative religion is an impossibility. Now I can I look I you know I know a fair amount about a fair amount about Hinduism. I've been to India 14 times and met with Brahmins. And 
I know a thing or two about Hinduism, a little less about Buddhism, not as much about Islam. But uh, look, I could become, if I just wanted to, I could become an expert on their practices and tenets and history and structure and all of that. But that doesn't make me uh, a Hindu or a Buddhist or a Muslim, because there has to be actual faith. And then we're back to the subjective experience. Mm-hmm. And so um, I, I don't generally try to discredit any buddy's religious experience, I simply witness to Christ and let Jesus do what Jesus is going to do with that. But I'm not out to try to change somebody's mind. Um, I had another thought, and it, and it, it went away, because we're, we're, we're kind of in deep waters here, but I like it. Mm-hmm. It's good. Um, I, I just I think if we're going to talk about ultimate transcendence, there is no way that we get around, at some point, we have to ground our belief in a subjective experience. I, and I think if you don't do that, then you have cut yourself off from transcendence, and then that's when nihilism becomes a real possibility, that there is no meaning to life, that it's, it's this cosmic accident that we're all just trying to make some meaning out of, but it doesn't really exist, and that's when Nietzsche's fear becomes very real. And uh, I don't put it in the book, I maybe wish I had, but Nietzsche has this rather famous, at least for people that are well-read in Nietzsche, this famous lament where he says, 2,000 years and no new God. <laughs> and what he means is he's, he's, he's appalled that there's been no new God that has come along since Christ. And that's true. I mean, that really, I mean, there's been new religion. I mean, Islam is, you know, 600 years newer, but it's, it's still a riff on the same idea of the monotheistic God of, you know, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And there's been no new God, and that's because, at least in the West, Jesus has already cleared the field of all rival gods, so that we're left with this problem. And I, I think people need to face it honestly, that, that, that once Jesus has cleared all of the, the, the field of all rival gods, it's Jesus or what? You know, if you walk away, I mean, I'm not trying to use threatening language. I'm just trying to speak of this very dispassionately. If we walk away from Jesus, to what? To to what is going to give meaning to our lives? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's. I think of the story of Jesus with his disciples when he spoke in these very exotic and for many troubling ways. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me. And the crowd wants Jesus to pull away from those extreme statements, but he doesn't. And so, and people say, well, this is a hard saying. Who can handle this? And, and many pulled back and no longer walked as his disciples. And Jesus asks his 12, it's a very poignant moment, are you guys going to go away too? And Peter says, and I think it's one of his very best moments, Peter says, where are we going to go? We have come to believe that you have the words of life. So we've burned all of our bridges. There's nowhere else to go. So that's not answering your questions exactly, Josh, but it is my honest response to them. But I don't know if I can give you a real you know, correlation, one-to-one answer on your question, but right. that's my best attempt to respond to them. Yeah. What is one, one more question sort of on this topic. Because, again, it's, just, it's the one thing I think that I'm personally wrestling through myself is, is then what role does – objective reality uh in particular the historic the historicity of the resurrection play in our faith so just just a 
I mean, this is kind of blunt, but let's say hypothetically we woke up tomorrow and they said, we found the real tomb of Jesus. We know it's Jesus. The bones are in there. What would that do to your faith? I'm going to tell a story to answer that question, and it involves one of my true heroes, Fyodor Dostoevsky, who I often describe as one of the greatest theologians that we've known in modern times disguised as the world's greatest novelist, (laughs) and that his greatest work is the Brothers Karamazov. But in a letter to his brother, Fyodor Dostoevsky once said, if it should be proven to me, mathematically, that's what he mathematically, that Christ is outside the truth, and truth is outside of Christ, I would rather be with Christ than with the truth. Now, this is a very provocative statement, and Simone Weil, uh, the Jewish Christian mystic from the 1930s, 40s, she really didn't like that. I like Simone Weil, but I think I love Dostoevsky is saying there, and I think I understand him. Uh, Let me say it this way. Um, I do not believe that Christ is outside the truth and truth is outside outside of Christ. But what I know that I believe is that Christ is beautiful. And I trust my instinct for beauty more than I trust my ability to, to, to discern all forms of objective truth. I think that there is something to the saying that there are a few things, maybe only one thing, that is too good, too beautiful not to be true. And so the beauty of Christ has gained my allegiance. And I think I recognize the beauty. I I think I personally, Brian's on, I am better at recognizing beauty than I am in ascertaining truth. And so I would stick with my instinct that Christ is so beautiful that no matter what was allegedly proved to me otherwise, I would stay with Christ. Now, I say that as one who who actually is making the argument that um, proving this or that can be a tricky game, and maybe we just need to learn to recognize beauty when we see it. Um, I mean, the the uh, Greek philosophers talked about the transcendentals, the true, the good, and the beautiful, and these are um, these are attributes uh, that require no other justification. We want the true because it's true. We want the good because it's good. We want the beautiful because it's beautiful. It doesn't have to serve any utilitarian function. Later, the church fathers would say, indeed, and that these are the attributes of God. God is the true, the good, and the beautiful. And so we have a long history within the church of defense of the of, of the truth claims of, of Christianity, known as Christian apologetics. We've touched on that. We have the practice of Christian ethics, which is an attempt to discern the good in the light of Christ. But there's also Christian aesthetics, which we've been hit and miss on. Sometimes we've been good at it, but more often, especially in modern times, we followed the modern uh, cues of regarding beauty as unreliable and as mere adornment. Um, I think beauty is as reliable a guide to truth as so-called evidence or proof or math or something like that. So uh, I, I'm not worried. I mean, I know why I believe in Jesus. I, in the book, I tell the story of I had my own encounter with Christ, 
when I was 15 years old, and overnight I go from being a high school Zeppelin freak to the high school Jesus freak, although I still like <laughs> Zeppelin. <laughs> but uh, and then and then when I was a senior, you had to write the senior paper, you know. And I wrote this paper on resurrection, fact or fiction. And uh, I, I drew a lot upon Josh McDowell other apologists that were popular at the time. And I think I got like an A or A minus on the paper, which was a rare enough occurrence for me at that time. And, uh, but I look back upon that with a look, with, with, an, with embarrassment because it's disingenuous. Uh, what I was trying to do is to prove my Christian faith, uh, the same way, you know, you could prove the existence of, say, a giant squid <laughs> or something like that. Well, that isn't why I believe. I, I, I did not come to faith in Christ because I sat dispassionately and looked at the evidence and came up with a verdict. That isn't what happened. I encountered Christ. And, I, and I'm just not going to be altering my story to, uh, to please empiricists of modernity. <laughs> so I'm going to say, no, I believe this because of my experience, and here I stand. I can do no other, to quote Luther. So uh, I think that's how I'd respond to that. Yeah, that's great. Well, I think that's where we'll wrap it up. Uh, so, Brian, I want to thank you so much for taking time to be on the podcast. It has been a wonderful conversation. And again, the book is When Everything's on Fire, Faith Forged from the Ashes. It came out just a few weeks ago, so it'd make a make a really interesting Christmas present, a really good stocking stuffer. So uh, go out and, and pick up a copy. It's very thought-provoking. It's something that will sit with you for quite some time. 